This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Hey everyone, welcome to Z Prime On the Grid. I am Dylan Lockwood. Uh, we've got, as always, Joyce Dooley here with us. Joyce, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks. We've also got Z Prime CEO Jason Rodriguez back again. Jason, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Dylan. Hi, Joyce. Doing great. So today uh, we're just going to be talking about the state of things, as it were. Uh, and I think uh, just a good way to sort of kick that off is talk a little bit about um, ourselves, if our listeners will indulge us uh, some some selfishness here, uh, because uh, we're entering a period of time in not just in uh, as a company, but as a as a culture and a species, uh, getting out of a you know a really difficult time that has restricted a lot of the things that. Um, we were able to do. And while there is still an ongoing pandemic, not just in the United States, but globally, um, it, it's definitely too early to say things are back to normal. But uh, we're starting to see things open in ways that uh, they previously weren't. And uh, things are just sort of, um, try, we're, we're trying to figure out as a, as a people how to uh, allow ourselves allow ourselves more things as as vaccination rates increase and and such and such so with that in mind uh i just first want to start uh i just want to start with how are how are you guys doing jason how how have you been holding up i i've been doing good it's the summer the kids are out of school yeah yeah believe it or not they're excited for summer but they're excited that they'll be going back to in-person school in the fall finally after yeah after being being out since march of 2020 and how about you joyce how how are you doing these days um i'm doing pretty well as same as jason it's been i mean it was a rough adjustment with all the stuff you know getting used to COVID 19 and working from home um I ended up going bowling the other day for the first time in over a year. And with the CDC restrictions being lifted in the masks, I found it really strange to be out in public with other people and also not wearing a mask. It doesn't feel normal to me yet um, to really be out and about in public uh, with an unrestricted face. <laughs> um, what about you, Dylan? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of feeling the same way. Um, the, the rule up here is that uh, businesses can still businesses can still require masks and such and a lot of them are choosing to do so and i'm totally fine with that um but yeah i did go to like a minor league baseball game and they're just and they had a you don't need a mask if you're if you're vaccinated policy um so i mean it's just a big outdoor stadium so i was so i was philosophically okay with doing it uh but just yeah walking around um freely without without a mask definitely felt um it, it, it definitely felt uh, weird. First, uh, one thing I thought was thinking about was how your face is no longer covered, so people can like see your face. So if you're just, so I had to once again be sort of self conscious about what what my face looked like while I was going around when I was going around uh, talking to people and such. I, I don't know, just interesting things like that. Jason, when it comes to like Z Prime, um, how have uh, how have you been thinking about our 
direction for the re the remainder of 2021 and potentially the the start of 2022. I know we're not doing um we're not doing in-person events for at least this year um but are there are we thinking they might be on the horizon? Yes, they're certainly on the horizon. Yeah, good good point. We we are staying digital. There is a chance it has been decided that we could go back to some in-person in December for the WE3 summit, but uh, it's going to depend a lot on California which has more restrictions. But that would probably be the closest chance to doing something in person in 2021. And that hasn't been decided. But as far as 2022 goes, yeah, yeah, we're really looking forward to finally getting to see each other, see staff, see our partners and, and have some fun in, in 22 with, with in 2022 with bringing back live events. As far as Z Prime goes, yeah, some of the big things we got, obviously, we have a big research push out there and we're doing a lot more of of promotions there and, and talking about the the unique stuff we're doing there. So that's very exciting to have our research be uh, playing a bigger role in not just uh, in, in all we do, not just at events. So that that's definitely one thing we're, we're very excited about th this year. And then the other other is just broadening our focus. I, I, I our state of the future event, which moved to a monthly series, actually gives us a bigger a bigger platform to tell that story of the transition of cities. So that's something we're very excited about too. And I think that's going to carry into what we do in 2022 more as, as like the convergence of the resilience conversation really needs a, a multi-stakeholder approach. And, uh, and I feel we, we have a good chance to play a big role in that. Keeping those conversations going, I think has been, um, useful because normally, um, in between, you know, in between, um, events you'd f those conversations would be continued by other events uh, but you know uh, there those won't probably be coming back wide scale until until next year so been definitely uh, filling the void there um, yeah uh, Joyce you you kind of came in mid pandemic so I'm I'm interested um, from from your perspective how it felt hitting the ground running uh, there and sort of uh, working uh, working to to where we got now, and how you're how you're feeling about it. You know, well, I started working with you guys in over the holidays, um, and then came in full time in January. Um, I think that if this was the first time that I joined a team remotely, um, you know, working out of the Geekdom co working space, you know, we actually operated uh, almost normally during the initial pandemic. So I was in an office uh, that had pretty CDC policies and health policies um, for who could come in and out of the space. So then transitioning to a truly like work, um, remote work, remote onboarding with a team, having a virtual uh, team environment uh, has been a very interesting shift for me. Um, but it's one that's worked out really well. I think uh, the Z Prime team did a really fantastic job of being able to onboard people uh, that weren't uh, located in Austin and were based together. Um, I'd love to hear from Jason how it's been a pivot for you to bring in people virtually versus uh, maybe more traditional hires onto the team. Yeah, to be honest, that has not changed too much more so Anytime, especially the last two or three years when we've brought you folks on, it's probably impacted more of Aaron Otan, right, who's managing that team, or Ricky, who's brought in those those there. I think that we did have a 
the advantage of getting getting being familiar with your work and you being familiar with us. So that 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 definitely played a played a role forward in there. Probably more so just from like the inter inter team dynamics has been the change of not getting to uh, just to interact uh, in, in in just outside of work circumstances because those are always fun. I think that's part of part of mm. the cool part of the, the, any organization any culture is just. There, there, there's likeness, and you get to know little, little intricacies about folks that those are harder to come by. So it's also harder to glean. Like maybe there was something going on outside that that will come mm-hmm. up in a conversation where you're just like, hey, I'm just driving to this next meeting, and you drop something. So, but I, I feel our team has handled that pretty well for the most part. So that's been a change, uh, but it's also why I'm excited to get the see see folks again like dylan it's probably been since february 2020 (laughs) since i saw you uh same thing with joyce actually too so Mm -hmm. yeah i'm very much looking forward just to getting to meet our new team members in person yeah we'll have to we'll have to have a big party so keeping in the theme of the state of things uh the main feature of today's episode is going to be uh talking about some headlines this is something we haven't done in a very long time but uh, I'm excited to have you two on to sort of uh, talk about what's new in energy news, uh, because we're, we're often talking about, um, about issues that are, you know, within, uh, within an organization or at the very least that uh, are key to um, a specific organization. We're bringing experts on to discuss it, but this is sort of a more... Uh, public perspective sort of thing. Uh, and also I, I'm interested in uh, your, in, in some, in some hot takes as it were. <laughs> um, so without, without, without further ado, uh, the first thing I wanted to, that caught my eye was something in uh, the New York times, which was that, the, which was about the, the final death knell for, at least I think the final death nail for the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, which if people aren't aware of, it was a, it, it was a planned uh, oil pipeline from Canada to uh, the Gulf coast. And it was, I mean, it was, it was going to be like something like 1200 miles long. It was proposed back in the Obama administration late second term, I think 2015. And it was, the permit was denied and then that was reversed under the Trump administration in 2017. And, uh, president Biden has, uh, once again, uh, undone the undoing. So we're back to it it being essentially dead and not going to be able to, to proceed. So, uh, there's, you know, a lot, there's a lot of like, politics around like what the potential benefits or problems would have been. But what I I'm actually more interested in, in discussing here is uh, what do you think, what, what is this sort of signal for uh, these kinds of construction projects going forward? Like what, what, what is, where are the environmental lines being drawn in the sand from your perspective? What this is signaling really is this is a national commitment to doing a better job of identifying where to build and what to build and who to be involved, who needs to be involved and who should be involved from the very beginning. I think the Keystone pipeline is a really key example of um, not everybody was at the 
decision makers table when that project was getting off the ground and it had serious implications about where it was going to go and who it was going to be impacting. Um, so on one hand, it's a huge victory for people who are often marginalized or not invited to the table or overlooked um, in terms of how really big major infrastructure projects happen in our country. Um, it's also happening at the local levels too, I would say that there's been this shift to move towards a more informed, more inclusive, more dynamic uh, discussion around how we get these things done because younger people, um, communities are finding like better strongholds, I think, to advocate for themselves and their communities against big projects like this coming in. So at the local level, San Antonio Water System just went through a round of things where they um, have about building a sewage pipeline over protected waters, and that actually was struck down uh, within the last week or so. And so this is a thing that is heading our communities at every level. And I think that developers and um, major players are having to think differently about how they're going to actually engage and make these projects happen and what they're going to be building within these communities, if anything at all. Yeah, and I would add to, to me what this signals, because Joyce covered those, those key fundamental impacts in terms of how you engage and how you do big things. We're talking about a massive infrastructure bill now. And we have to get that right. And if we don't, then then regardless of, of how beneficial, even if the environmental aspects are right, if, if the other piece is not there, then you're going to continue to have these really big, potentially you know highly impactful at the community level projects continue to get stalled out, especially if we don't go about them the right way. So I lo love that point. But I would also point that this is also pointing to the conversation about upskilling and reskilling and who's left out you know, what happens to all the folks in the in oil and gas who who are who are scared right who, who are really thinking like how do they how do i fit into this transition they're seeing they're seeing the major automakers transition they're seeing bp shell and all the things happening there and and i just have to imagine that if i'm a family and i'm supported uh in in that field that you're probably pretty scared right now and and and, and and rightfully so, probably. So this this speaks to us as a as an industry to do our part, and also hopefully uh, the the key stakeholders and those in the community to say how do how do we give the skills and make sure that folks know that they're going to have the skills or be trained on the skills to be a part of whether it's the manufacturing sector or it's the new tech sector. That that part I think we also have to get right because if not, it gets lost in terms of uh, gets lost in social media. In the way news travels and then it becomes a uh yeah, the other dylan you, you had it right the politics gets so messy so quickly so this is a chance for us to get out in front with how we can upskill provide education provide training provide families that bridge to get to that next thing to me that's that's a big fight that's going to happen but i think we can do a better job of educating around this topic and maybe there's also something to be said for uh, in regards to keystone in specific, it maybe shows that there's uh, probably there, there's probably a space for someone to uh, create and set some some standards for the best way to um, propose those kinds of large scale energy projects in a way that will have like a, a, good, a good baseline for people to, ha to, to have footing on to, to make these proposals so that you're not sort of left up to the political whims of whoever can approve or deny your uh, 
your permit so it doesn't just go keep going like back and forth depending on on who's in charge if you have this better uh sort of like legal baseline to stand on but that's just a thought no that's a good point very good thought so yeah the the next uh the next headline i wanted to talk about was uh, is from uh utility dive it's uh by emma penrod it's about uh texas specifically um about that they've uh the lawmakers the the state legislature has approved a bill mandating um, power plant weatherization and uh, changes to uh, scarcity pricing. And it also creates a energy reliability council uh, run by the state. And uh, this is of course in response to the uh, winter storms in back in February. Um, Governor Abbott is expected to sign the bill um, according to what I've read. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious uh, if either of you have read have, have read the Senate Bill three or if you've heard, heard coverage of it and um, if you think it's uh, if it if it you'll if it'll do what it's supposed to do and make um, make events like February uh, I mean obviously the cold snaps will still happen but make them a lot less devastating so I'm curious what your what your thoughts on the bill are. Yeah, so I think that we need to be careful about political theater in some instances, um, not to diminish this bill coming out, um, because weatherization and really um, safeguard the grid, especially in Texas, um, is definitely paramount and it should be on the top of utilities and regulators' minds all throughout the state. Um, but there have been some conflicting decisions made by ERCOT and some of the other governing bodies around recovery with this. And so one has to wonder just how effective this bill is going to be in changing the political whims of the regulators and the utilities themselves. And what does that mean? And like what level of, you know, safeguarding are we going to be doing? And so I think it's a good thing to have. Um, I definitely think it should be mandated. But in terms of the actual efficacy of it, uh, I'm going to be on the fence about it for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 good points, Joyce and Dylan. Yeah, so have not read the bill and but but I do apply, you know, know, give them some credit for for putting it out there. My guess is this is probably in. 10, 20 years too late, unfortunately. One, one the, the bill does a good job of, of creating a statewide alert system, but where I think our, our research shows that the, the infrastructure is so old and so outdated that you're talking way beyond hundreds of billions to, to really secure it in the current form that it's in. So you know, 10, 20 years ago, maybe we had a shot, but do, doing this now, trying to reinvent the will, I think we're probably just putting band-aids on some much, much bigger issues. And the call for just changing the way the whole energy system works is what's happening now at the national level. And unfortunately, we're probably going to see more severe events. So so where I think you could you could really do some help for consumers is is really educating them on what what to do when you're when you have prolonged outages because we're probably going to see more of those. Uh, just because we're just not doing enough there. Uh, there, I know probably a lot of folks wouldn't agree with me there, but coming off the experience, it happened. It's happening more quickly across the United States. Uh, it's it's bound to keep happening here. The infrastructure is old. There's there's no argument against that, and and we're, we we really have to get 
be much more ahead in terms of modernizing the grid and rethinking of how we design it? Um, some of the market interests external from the utility space, but in the technology markets or in some of these other really big industries that are starting to look to Texas as destination locations, I think that there's going to be a nudge from the other side of the table that's going to help dictate how rapidly we get some of this figured out in order to really uh, establish this establish the grid. I don't think that we should wait for industry to dictate what happens outside of the utility space, but I think we're going to see some really interesting pushes happen just as a necessity to deal with the growth that's coming to Texas. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good point. I mean, the, the semiconductor plant out in Austin costs multi-billion dollars of damage, uh, had global impacts. I think we touched a little bit on that. But e even those, if you're shopping for a home in Texas, uh, especially at some of the more upper income communities, they're, they're using the selling point of being uh, being on a circuit that that won't be shut off or being close to critical facilities. Uh, and you're you, and now you're seeing a lot more of the the, the Tesla Powerwalls. Obviously, I think the one that sticks out is the Ford the Ford generator and, and how much buzz that got and how they use it as a selling point. I, my guess is they were not thinking of using that as a selling point before the February storm. February storm happened, and they put that into their marketing messaging, and, and you know that's been a big hit in terms of the out, outlay there. So that's probably a good view into what's to come. Uh, but, but probably going back to my point, I, I don't think it's enough. I think we're in for something that a lot of us have not seen or, or dealt with in a long time. One last thing about this bill. So as I mentioned, makes uh, changes to scarcity pricing, which um, the uh, consultant in in the piece, Caitlin Smith, um, said would likely lead to um, higher energy prices. Do you is your sense that uh, on the ground that Texans will um, accept higher energy prices in exchange for a more resilient grid? Or is that something that's going to really need to be? marketed not right now if if they do you, you yeah you're, you're going back to a fight that <laughs> that that gets pretty ugly pretty quickly just because they're saying hey we're having to front the bill for for errors that you know we're 20 years in the making and there's a paper trail to prove that you know, the, the right actions were taken so i think the texas consumer uh, is much more educated in, in how of the mistakes made by prior not, not just energy companies, you know, all the stakeholders involved. So it's going to be really tough to get that going. If that's the end result, then I, actually I think that makes a better market environment for disruption in how energy markets actually work. Awesome, thanks. I, I that that's good for me to know because again, I'm I'm not I'm not in I'm not in Texas, so I'm not I'm never certain what. Uh, what the opinions on the ground are like. So thanks for that. Um, okay, so moving moving on to our next headline, um, we, we were talking, you know, earlier about how an, an oil project uh, ran into some legal trouble. Now we're going to talk about a renewable project running into some legal trouble. Uh, this was this was a this was a article again in the New York Times, by uh, this one's by Ivan Penn, which, by the way, is a great name if you're a journalist. And, and this is that uh, the offshore wind farms show what Biden's climate plan is up against. Uh, subtitle: The U.S. has fallen way behind Europe, partly because of an old shipping law and opposition from homeowners and fishing groups. Um, it's so it's specifically talking about 
how uh, how Europe in general has 54 offshore wind turbines and the United States, um, which is comparable in terms of uh, amount of coastline, has seven. Uh, not 7,000, seven specifically. Uh, but, and part of, part of the problem, even though uh, President Biden has said he wants uh, 2,000 turbines over the next, uh, installed over the next eight years, it's coming uh, into, it's coming across two key issues. One is there's um, a law, a national law saying that um, ships that move within the United States need to be made in the United States. And so that makes uh, transporting all the necessary uh, materials for construction very, very cumbersome. And also uh, there are resistance from um, local fishing groups that are, and not just, I don't just mean like uh, people who fish commercially, but also, um, you know, environmental like resource groups that manage the fish have felt that the federal government hasn't properly um, assessed how these projects would affect um, would affect the fish so my so my question here is uh, my question here is uh, are are the are these laws are these laws like uh, serious obstacles in the sense that they're 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 needlessly cumbersome and need to be done done away with, or is the or uh, do these plans need to be better thought? Is offshore wind um, as viable as the as the administration wants us to think? And and or finally, is there time for this plan these plans to be reassessed, or is it probably just a better idea to look somewhere else? And you may not have the answers to that. I'm just interested, like the actual like data in front of you to make that decision as a consultant. I'm just kind of asking for a take. What a whale of a topic, Dylan. Um, bad joke. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to like from the environmental perspective, it goes back to who's at the table when we're making these decisions in the first place and what sustainability truly means across the board, because there's a lot of different definitions for what sustainability is from a business perspective, from an environmental perspective, and how do you find synergy between the two? Um, so that's a continuing conversation, and I am not an expert in fish or in wildlife, so I can't give you know my opinion about whether or not I think it's worth the risk, because I just don't understand fully that perspective of what it would do. But is it a viable thing? Um, I think that it is viable. I think Europe has proven that this is a viable source of energy that at times can overproduce um, and have no way to really deal with the overproduction of energy based on wind. Um, I want to say there was a problem in Scotland a couple of years back um, where they had produced too much energy and they didn't really know what to do with it um, as a result of the wind farms that are out there. So I think it is a sustainable decision for us to make. I think it should be pursued, but just like anything else with the right decision makers at the table and what, what sustainability means for the U S um, as well as the ocean. And then for your other question about whether or not like the regulatory policies like, do they need to change? I don't know that when those initial documents were drafted that they had offshore wind in mind as an option. Um, I mean, how long ago were those things drafted? And so if it's outdated legacy that needs to be reexamined under the lens of a 21st century problem or 21st century solution, 
um, that I think that there's definitely wiggle room for, you know, readdressing that stuff. Um, does that mean it's easy? Absolutely not. I think policy discussions are um, just inherently hairy and can be difficult to overcome. But I think the conversation should be had. Yeah. Yeah, my, my take is is the the sustainability uh, like mix and, and the trade-offs and compromises has to probably broaden to to have to meet this bold there. On the other hand, to you also battling that Biden has has taken this this open this open assessment approach where I think for the good is that you you want feedback as much feedback as you can, and 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 for the most part that with that it opens up a lot of new voices who need to come to the table and so there, there, there's going to be some that yeah he's just going to have to take the loss uh, so to speak and then there's there, there's there's opportunities where you find the common ground you work together and you push those solutions forward uh, that does put the, put back the timeline though i think what that impacts is the timeline to be able to meet certain things and in the political environment in the election when you're battling elections that that can force probably decisions that might not be optimal uh, to to occur, and this might might be one of those instances. I'm all for offshore wind. Obviously, the the, the fish lobby and, and the fishing industry is very powerful. So so that's that's another another thing to consider. But yeah, yeah, you you do want to be. I think our oceans are, are very precious, and and you and we should be thinking about them differently. Again, going back past it, let the scientists work it out. Give us. Give us our set of choices. We're going to have to trade 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 off things. We understand that, and then and then let those at the table make sure they're all there, and then let them make the best decision uh, for us. That's that that's my take on it. Yeah, and one thing that springs to mind for me is you know up here in Washington, the push and pull between energy policy and fish policy is very it's very real. It's very central to local politics up here. Um, and so, but I think there's, I think there's lessons to be learned. I mean, granted, we're talking about like dams on our rivers instead of, uh, you know, instead of turbines in the ocean, but still, yeah, the, 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 the principle is the same that, um, yeah, it's, it's all about, it's all about stakeholders, not just in terms of delivering on the project, but in terms of everything that's below it. And that, uh, because, you know, one of the things the article mentions is that one of the reasons that another one of the reasons that it's like harder to jumpstart offshore wind in the U.S. is that we don't have a solid manufacturing pipeline for all of the parts that are going to be needed to do all of that uh, established yet. And that's going to have to be like part of the larger plan. And then you want to make sure that the that the manufacturing of that doesn't offset the environmental goals you're trying to do in terms of producing them and 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 all that sort of thing but it 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 is the kind of thing that makes me a little bit pes- a little bit pessimistic uh not that necessarily that laws are in the way but it, that the fact that it's bumping up against these things that have been that have been on the books and are largely predictable suggests to me that um there's some cart being put before the horse in terms of the um in terms of the the 2035 um carbon neutral energy sector goal and just from things i'm hearing around uh especially with like uh you know not just in terms of the other podcasts we've done but just you know conversations i have with people in the industry it's just like that that 2035 goal makes me i'm very skeptical i'm very skeptical of it at this time and like stuff like this doesn't 
doesn't help my assessment of that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let's uh, let's talk about something a little um, more positive, which is uh, this was this was a uh, an article in the Washington Post by Ben Eikenson. I'm sorry if I pronounced your name wrong. Um, he's not listening, but uh, yeah, it, it's called. <laughs> Uh, cool roofs, cooler designs as the building industry embraces energy sustainability. Um, this talks about, well, a lot of stuff, but the, um, the framing devices around uh, different kinds of new kinds of apartment complexes that are being built that are able to, um, you know, maximize uh, natural light, airflow, and all sorts of things to keep buildings like naturally cool during heat um, and during periods of intense heat and such, uh, and designing uh, buildings and such for, uh, to be, to enable better and energy sustainability from, from the resident, from residents and from, uh, you know, commercial people who use the build, build those buildings as well. So uh, jo Joyce, I want, I want to start with you because this is, um, you, you, you've worked with, with cities and, uh, and, and stakeholders in, in terms of uh, design and things in, in your work at, at Geekdom and such. So um, I'm, I'm curious uh, what you think about the notion of um, builders and uh, designers of buildings and uh, like ar architects. Like urban development? Urban developers, yes. Urban development uh, <laughs> coming in and, and helping with the sustainability and the, uh, and the, and the energy the energy problems we're, fa we're, we're facing now. Is this something that's like sort of always been the case? Is this something that the energy industry like is taking notice of? Or is this uh, something that's like kind of cool and needs to be capitalized on immediately? No, I think it's very cool. So I'm, you know, I really love architecture and I love hybrid designs and I love, you know, all kinds of things like that. Had a subscription to Dwell Magazine for a very long time. So really love innovative architecture. Um, is it feasible to do at scale? Not yet. Um, I, there's some really amazing projects that are out there right now that are trying to address this from a, you know, sustainable, from a, like sustainability from a materials perspective, there's like, what kinds of materials are you using? I think in the article, it cites that there is a porous water capture hybrid concrete, um, uh, that they use, um, on the outside of the building. There's, um, you know, ways that you can paint your roof white uh, in the summer or just like have your roof white to better re like reflect the sun and to keep things cool. Then you have um, a bunch of really interesting, you know, um, elements that can come into play. I think it's a little complicated when you have so much growth in a population, too, that you have all of these uh stick builds basically of these big development communities that come in because the there's so many people moving to an area that you have these um not quite manufactured homes but you've got these very blueprinted you know run-of-the-mill buildings and homes that are quick to build get up but, but they're not really efficient in terms of energy use or how they interact with the environment so coming up with creative, inclusive designs for those things is a lot of work. And those kinds of projects, I don't know that it's going to happen at scale anytime soon. But uh, my hope is that we can continue to incorporate those designs, especially as cities retrofit their buildings and new technologies can come into play. Because some of the new communities have a real opportunity where they could be building those stick homes 
that are blueprinted, you know, just cookie cutter models, or they could really take advantage of the fact that building a new community is actually, you can be much more efficient, you can be much more strategic about how you build things. It's more cost effective to do it that way than have to retrofit old buildings. So if you're in an established city, like in a, in a historical city like San Antonio, where you have a designation across a bunch of your infrastructure downtown specifically, you're going to run into a lot of challenges trying to incorporate these new elements into your architecture, whereas these new communities have a leg up. So I think it's lots of conversations about, you know, what it means to be sustainable within that city or that community, having great developers come in who have a vision for what can be achieved, um, and then a commitment to seeing it all the way through. Uh, but I think it's an exciting thing. Um, and I would love to see more projects like that in the future. Yeah, yeah. I'll just add, yeah, the energy industry is going to, will, will certainly embrace this and continue to. And uh, yeah, you start tying that to economic development a lot, of, a lot of cities are not like Austin or even San Antonio, where there are a lot of folks just naturally attracted to. So anyways, you, 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 can, you can highlight what you're doing in your community, highlight what you're bringing to residents, especially to newer, more environmentally conscious, uh, but also artistic, I think, oriented uh, students, or not students, residents. The energy industry can play a big role in that and it's going to continue to embrace it. So I like it. It's really cool. And we'll love to see more of it. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good point, Jason, because um, I, I think a lot of what's been uh, is that it's not necessar necessarily the article isn't necessarily making the case that like, oh, this is how it, like everything's changing. Everything's changing because of this as much as uh, it's being high. The project, the, the projects that have existed are being highlighted. Like they um, retrofitted the Empire State Building to be more efficient and that sort of thing. And then they'll, they'll you know, they'll make these apartment buildings and um, put some put some news out about it. And I think I think the idea is is uh, that that sort of um, that that sort of thing is going to be is going to be normalized soon in a very easy sell in terms of how you. Uh, update building codes and requirements uh and that sort of thing so i think that's that that that's the that's the positive sign and i, I agree with with both of you that like um that the discussions need to be had now and they need to be comprehensive so that you can create the best uh codes for your city okay so i'm gonna move on to our final to our final topic here um this is uh this is very relevant to something Joyce brought up a couple episodes ago. Uh, but so right now, um, President Biden is taking his first trip abroad. He's going going to Europe uh, and the press pool that was to follow him there uh, had their flight delayed by a day. We missed We had a whole little area time of darkness on the, on the president's whereabouts because their plane was taken over by cicadas. Now the bill, the the billions of cicadas that are emerging from their fourteen year slumber and are currently flying all around the East Coast stopped uh, essentially the White House press corps from traveling. Um, the, the the tweets were abound uh, asking if there going to be FBI investigations into the into the cicadas and uh, if if the cicadas had uh, pertinent uh, issues with uh, with the press as an institution. So I'm I'm, I'm curious. Uh, how you feel about these renegade cicadas attacking a free press? 
well, clearly this is definitely a matter of national security because um, the nightmare of nightmares that cicadas are, um, especially when they're coming out in full force the way that they are this year. I had a feeling that it was going to come back to haunt me after we talked with Marcus and, Mar and Marvin. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, what do you do? It's a natural phenomenon. Um, I, I mean, I would love to get Mulder and Scully involved as an X-Files fan. I think that we could definitely look into this a little bit more. Um, maybe there, this is out there, but I'm down as long as this, as long as I don't have the South Texas, I'm fine. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm all for some, uh, fun, fun disruption. So I say, I, I say we need some more cicada moments in 2021, 2022. And, and, and we'll love to see whether it pop up next. Let's let's just give them a little, little flexibility, a little grace. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what they take out next. So yeah, <laughs> I'm all for supporting their cause of a fun disruption, and I, I will tell them go go do it. All right, more swarms of things, please. Uh, <laughs> Actually, have you have you seen any have you seen any good cicada content? One uh, I, I saw one where there was a there was a boy a little boy who was taking the dead cicadas and then like posing them in like uh, in like dollhouses and stuff and taking pictures. No, I haven't seen it. You know, uh, it hasn't come across my feed yet, Dylan. But I have a feeling as a result of this podcast, it probably will. Yeah, let's algorithm some cicadas in, into Joyce's feed. Yeah, we need more cicada, just like cowbell. Cicadas are the cowbell of twenty twenty to twenty twenties. Oh man, uh, that's that's a reference. All right, and with that, um, we'll wrap it up. Thanks for uh, listening. In. Thanks for uh, and joining us on this. Uh, journey so yeah anyway you can find our research and media at zprime.com you can find us on social media at dy lockwood at je dooley at js rodriguez and at zprime underscore research uh my name is dylan and we'll see you all next time with a regular interview